Today's scripture reading comes from Daniel 5, verses 1 through 30. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale, and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams explain riddles and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you and that insight, intelligence and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne 
and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the most high God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you. And as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand and this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sohi, for reading that entire passage. I thought it was really important now, before we get into the message, that we hear that whole story. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 5, the passage we just read. We're going to be looking at that in detail. We're in a series on the book of Daniel uh, for this fall. And the title of this series is Faithful in Exile. Now, the book of Daniel was written during exile, the, the exile of Israel for people in exile, having been conquered by Babylon, Daniel and the Jewish people were trying to figure out what it meant to be faithful in a whole new normal for them. As a minority in a foreign culture, not a majority any longer. With no temple where they lost all their normal structures for worship in a political situation where there was intense pressure to live in fear or to compromise. As we've seen in the past five weeks as we've been looking at Daniel, the parallels and the connection to our lives and our situation are tremendous and many. Daniel is a book about how we can be faithful even in exile, but even more than that, it's a book about how God is faithful in exile. The main theme of the book that we've seen week after week in the first four chapters is that God is in control. God is at work, even when it doesn't seem like it to us. And often when we're living through a situation like the exile, like Daniel experienced, in a whole new normal where everything has changed, it's very hard to see. It's very hard to believe. God is at work, even this, even now. And this story that we just heard read develops the main theme of Daniel even further. God is in control. He is at work. The well-known saying 
you probably picked up on it as we read this story. The writing is on the wall. It comes from this story. This is the origin of that phrase. This phrase, I think, also is the best summary of what we are supposed to learn and take from this uh, passage. What does it mean? The writing's on the wall. Maybe you already understand that phrase, but just in case, uh, I want to put up a definition of this phrase. I think it'll help us as we look at this story together. The writing on the wall. When somebody says that, what are they saying? They're saying this. It's, it's a phrase that means when an inevitable result or imminent danger has become apparent and undeniable. You can't deny it anymore. When there are clear signs that something will fail or no longer exist. A few examples of how we use this phrase. You'd say something like, well, she saw the writing on the wall and left her company for a new job before she and many others were laid off. It was clear the writing was on the wall. Another way you could use it is say, nobody's going to lend us any money. We'll have to come up with it some other way. The writing is on the wall. Sometimes we use it in a sports situation when uh, it's clear that one team is going to lose the game or lose a series. We say, the writing is on the wall. It's over. In exile, in an experience of exile, many things, most things are foggy. The future is uncertain. But even in exile, some things are still clear and apparent. When we focus on what is foggy, when we are focused on what is uncertain and lose sight of what is the inevitable results, according to God, the clear signs that God has shown us, we will struggle to be faithful. We'll struggle to see and believe that God is even being faithful to us. That's why we need to remember the writing on the wall. And that's what we're going to talk about as we look at this text. So first, we're going to walk through the story. We're going to walk through it piece by piece. And then we're going to look at three different ways that we're meant to hear this story and how each of these ways we can hear this story are meant to clear up the fog, meant to speak into the uncertainty that we are all feeling on some level during these times. So first, let's look at the story. We're going to put up the passages so you can follow along even on your screen. The feast. That's how it all begins, right? Verse 1 in chapter 5. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine in their presence. This is a huge party, a thousand people feasting. But who is this King Belshazzar? So far, the book of Daniel has only dealt with King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who's very well known in history. He's mentioned in many places in the Bible and other sources from the ancient Near East. He was one of history's great leaders and great emperors. Last week we saw in chapter 4, though we saw how his greatness and his accomplishments led him to great pride and how God humbled him. This story in chapter 5, it takes place 23 years after Nebuchadnezzar's death. So a lot of time has passed, and Daniel is an older man now. He's probably in his 80s. Nebuchadnezzar reigned for about 43 years, a long reign. But after him, all of his successors, they had very, very short stints at the top in leadership, some of them for less than a year. Eventually, a man named Nabonidus usurped the throne of Babylon. He took over. He took control. Belshazzar was Nabonidus' son. So here's how it worked. When Nabonidus was away, 
his son Belshazzar ruled as king in his place. And that's all the background of what's going on here. So this is the son of the king ruling in the king's place. And while his dad was away, he was uh, not really ruling, but he was partying with all his friends in his dad's absence. Interesting historical note on Belshazzar. For many years, the only historical record we had of Belshazzar was here in the book of Daniel. So this led many people to doubt the Bible on this point and conclude that, well, this is maybe a made-up figure, this never happened, we don't know anything about this guy Belshazzar. But in the 1850s, archaeologists discovered the Babylonian cylinders. We, we talked about one of these last week, and let me just show a picture of what these cylinders look like. They were buried deep in the ground, but they discovered many of these were buried beneath the Babylonian buildings. And one of these cylinders refers to Nabonidus and talking about his son, Belshazzar. So their history corroborated the account that we have in Scripture. What's so fascinating about this little cylinder here is that what it says, this is his dad's prayer for his son, Belshazzar. And he's praying that he would be a man of reverence for the gods. Quite ironic in light of this story, isn't it? Other sources we have talk about Nabonidus leaving Babylon for extended periods of time, even up to 10 years, and leaving Belshazzar in charge. So in Daniel, we're meant to compare what we've seen about Nebuchadnezzar and what is told to us about this guy Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a conqueror. He was a builder of a great empire. He was strong. He was majestic. History shows him to be one of the great leaders and empire builders of all time. Like Daniel says in verse 18, this is who Nebuchadnezzar was. And from what we see here, Belshazzar is none of these things, right? He is a partier and a drinker. He built nothing. He wants to throw a party for his friends while his dad is out of town. He's kind of a joke. Look at verses 2 through 4. While he's under the influence of wine, it says, he got the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And this is more than just kind of partying and debauchery going on here. This is blasphemy. This is mocking and ridiculing God to his face. Nebuchadnezzar had took these vessels out from the temple of Jerusalem, and he put them in his trophy room, basically. He said, I have conquered this kingdom and this God, but he held them in a place of honor even then and respect. But here, Belshazzar, who had nothing to do with acquiring these, he deliberately mocks the God of the Jews. And this is serious business. I was talking about this with one of my sons yesterday. It came up where he was saying, um, sometimes, Dad, when you talk about, like, this is, this is my car, keep it clean, or be careful with the walls in our house. This is my house. Why do you say this is my house? And why do you get so animated and upset sometimes about that? And I said, yeah, that's, that's a good question. But here's what's going on. And I, I use this illustration from this story as an example. When, think about this. When you walk into somebody's house and say if you come into their house and you're all dirty, your shoes are dirty, you get the carpet all dirty, you track it with mud, you start breaking things in the house and somebody says, what are you doing? You are ransacking my house. You're disrespecting me. You say, no, I'm, I'm just, it's just your carpet. It's not you. It's just your house and your stuff. There is a strong connection between how we treat somebody's stuff and things and how we respect and honor that person. 
That's what's going on here in this story. Belshazzar is taking things that were dedicated and set apart to God, his things. And the way he treated those things was how he was treating God himself. So there's quite a sober warning here in this passage. There's words, uh, lyrics of a very old school song. Uh, you don't mess around with Jim. <laughs> he has these lyrics. He says, you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't do that. God is patient beyond our ability to ever conceive, but he will not allow his name or his glory to be profaned among the nations. Moving on in the story. What happens as Belshazzar is worshiping his idols with the vessels from the temple? At verse 5, it says, At that moment, uh, fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. So as the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turns pale, his thoughts terrified him, and he soiled himself. Yeah, it actually says that in the Bible. And literally, the knots of his loins were loosed. So we get the point, that's what's going on. And his knees were knocking together. The famous artist, Rembrandt, he captured this scene in one of his paintings, and I want to show you that painting right now. Look at, look at the face of Belshazzar. There's revelry and partying you can see that was happening but all of a sudden he looks behind him and he's in terror and he's in shock here is the great king of babylon and we'll just keep it family friendly here he he went potty in his pants when he saw this his knees were knocking in fear he shouts out get the wise men in here right now they need to tell me what's going on whoever can tell me what this writing means you'll be third place in the kingdom there's my dad there's me and then there's going to be you they couldn't tell him. He's even more pale. He's even more terrified. So then what happens? And get this, verse 10. Let's put that up on the screen. The queen comes in, right? And now who is this queen? This isn't his wife. His wife uh, was with, his wives actually were with him at the party. This queen was not already there. So she comes in. This is actually the queen mother. This is either his mom, it could be his mom, or a mother figure who's in a place of respect and, um, and leadership in the kingdom. So the point is, she's not a part of the feast. She hurts him crying out, crying, and says, go get Daniel. And if you've been reading, you're wondering, why doesn't Belshazzar know about Daniel, who's interpreted dreams for Nebuchadnezzar on multiple occasions? Now let's look at verse 13 as we move and see what does Daniel say here. He comes in, he's brought before the king, and Belshazzar says to him, look at what he says, Are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? Do you hear the disdain that he has for Daniel? Are you one of those slaves we've captured long ago, conquered Jewish servants? I've heard you have a spirit of the gods in you. Not I know what you've done. I... I respect the facts of history. No, I heard about you that you can interpret. Okay, let's see if you can. I'll clothe you in purple and a gold chain you'll get, and you'll have the third highest position. Notice how Daniel responds here. No thanks, I don't want your robe, your chain, or that position. But I will read it and I will interpret it. But first, I have a little sermon for you, even though you didn't ask for that. His sermon is in verses 18 through 24. And he says... Did you pay attention to history, the greatness and the majesty of Nebuchadnezzar? God gave that to him, but when his heart became exalted and he got arrogant, God 
humbled him. We saw that last week until he acknowledged that God was in charge. God is in control and not him. But you, you knew all this and you did not humble your heart. You've exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. You have not glorified him, the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of of your life. So he spoke that sermon, that prophetic message to Belshazzar. And then he said, okay, sermon done. Let's look at verses 24 through 28, the writing on the wall. What does it say? So the words here that were written on the wall, like all um, ancient Near Eastern uh, languages, uh, what's happening here is that just the consonants were listed on the wall. The vowel points were, were filled in Uh, by the readers of those languages very naturally. So what did they say? The word said, mene, mene, tekel, perez. And just translated literally, this is just units of measurement. It would be like saying grams, grams, kilograms, tons, or something like that. So Daniel takes those words, and then he gives the interpretation. That's what it says, but what does it mean? The three nouns are turned into three verbs by Daniel, using those same consonants, filling in different vowels. So Daniel says, mene, that's related to the word number. Tekel, related to the verb weighed. And Perez is interpreted as the verb meaning divided. Here's the point. Your days are numbered. Your kingdom, it's over. You've been weighted and you've been found wanting. There's nothing there with you. Your kingdom has been divided. Babylon is done and Babylon is conquered. Was this fulfilled? What happened after this writing was interpreted? We'll look at the last section here, verses 29 through 31. It says, That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at age 62. Uh, It was fulfilled. Historical sources fill in some of the details for us. What happened was the Medes, they were surrounding Babylon. They rerouted the Euphrates River so they could walk right through, right into the city. And history tells us that the outer parts of the city didn't really put up a fight at all. And it says that the people on the inside of the city didn't even know what was happening. Why? Because they were partying and celebrating. Just like Daniel chapter 5 tells us. Just like that, the great Babylonian empire was gone. So what's the point of the story? What is the application for us? I think the best way for us to see the point is to see that there are at least three ways the story of Belshazzar needs to be heard and applied to our lives. First, as a comedy. Second, as a tragedy. And thirdly, as a story of victory. So if we're looking at this like we would look at the categories in a Netflix kind of screen where you have dramas, feel-good stories, family movies, this is a comedy. This fits three. It's a comedy, it's a tragedy, and it's a story of victory. So first, how is this a comedy? Well, you may have picked up on some of the funny elements here, but this, this is story is a comedy because this is a story about the rulers, the kingdoms, the political powers, and leaders of the world who try to challenge God and stand in his place. Seen from this angle, it's a comedy. So here we have the story of a king who's ruling while his dad is away. He's having a party with a thousand of his friends. He hasn't accomplished or done anything, 
He's he's a joke. We're meant to we're meant to see that he's a joke. And then a finger appears writing on the wall. That's freaky. That would be scary for anyone. But he loses this great king control over all of his bodily functions. His knees are hitting each other, shaking in terror. He screams so loud that his mommy figure has to come out and tell him what to do. This is one of the funniest stories in the Bible. And it's written that way on purpose. We're meant to laugh. You know, when when you see a child uh, wrestling with an adult, and parents with young kids, you may love like wrestling time. Get on the floor wrestling with. If you see a child wrestling with an adult, their mom or dad or something, and this happened to us when our boys uh, were little, you get down on the floor, you're rolling around, you're pushing and wrestling. What's the expression on the kid's face? Sometimes they're they're laughing and all that, but sometimes it gets really serious and really focused and angry and intense about it. That's how some of my boys were. They wanted to push me down and take me up. What's the expression, though, on the adult's face? (laughs) It's laughter and smiles. If it's not, there's a problem. Because you have this little person trying to take you out, and you're just laughing because the only way they can even budge you is if you let them. Do you ever think about the question, what makes God laugh? There is an answer to that question. The answer is whenever anyone tries to challenge his power or take his sovereign place. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. They say, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. God laughs says the Lord ridicules them. And then he speaks to them in his anger. He terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. When God Almighty looks at the rulers of the world and their proud and pompous claims, their attempts at glory, their illusions and delusions of power and control, the Bible tells us he laughs at that. And just like the story of the Tower of Babel, which there are many echoes of the story of the Tower of Babel in the book of Daniel. Same setting, same place, Babel, Babylon. This mighty kingdom of Babylon, which is setting itself up against God, harkens back to the time in Genesis 11 when the people of the world banded together to reach the heavens in their best attempt to build their best tower. And God, to paraphrase what he says in Genesis 11, he says, Oh, look at that little cute thing down there. Oh, let me go down there and take a look at what you've built. The point. The best of all human attempts to play God are laughable. It's a comedy. This all might sound a bit flippant with all the good or evil that a king or a ruler or a leader can do. Now, let me be clear. God does not laugh at injustice or evil. Never. But he laughs at the pompous and arrogant pride of those who think and act like they are in control. This story is not flippant at all. This laughter here is meant to wake us up so that we think clearly, so the fog is cleared out. And so that our thinking can become reasonable and logical once again. Think about it like this. If the God of the Bible 
is real and reigning over all things, if Jesus is king seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, then rulers, leaders, politicians who act like this isn't true are laughable. The feast is a joke. The days are numbered, weighed and wanting. One day it's all going to be gone. But if the God of the Bible is not real, if Jesus is not seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and the claims of Christianity, even the Bible says, are a joke. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Let's all eat and drink. Tomorrow we will die, if this isn't true. Let's all join Belshazzar's feast then. So this story is written to force us in our thinking to be clear. If there is a God, if he is almighty and Jesus is at his side reigning and ruling with him, then the writing is on the wall for every human kingdom, every tower of Babel, every Babylon in every age. And here it is for us. Let it clear our thinking. The future though it be uncertain politically in our country. Let the laughter of God clear your mind. Before you can vote, before you can campaign for a candidate or a cause, before you watch the news, before you listen to a podcast about politics, before you read a blog, before you take public office, if you do so, before you get on social media, you need to laugh or you won't be thinking clearly. That's the first way this story needs to be read. It is a comedy. But it is also a tragedy. This is one of the funniest stories in the Bible, but once the laughter dies down, this is actually one of the most tragic stories in the Bible as well. It, this story needs to be applied at the political level as a comedy, but it, uh, it is also meant to be read very personally. This is where the tragedy comes in. This is a story about what happens when a person does not humble their heart before God, even though they know better. Look at verse 22 again. It says, but you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. This is a very haunting verse. It's been haunting me all week as I've been studying this passage. Daniel is saying, you knew in your head about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but you never let it into your heart. This is a tragedy. Belshazzar, he knew all this. He knew how God is able to humble those who walk in pride. As chapter 4, verse 29 says, He knew what happened with Nebuchadnezzar, but he never let it into his heart. There's a saying I came across this week. Most of us can read the writing on the wall, but we just assume it's addressed to somebody else. The writing on the wall in this story is not just for Belshazzar or Babylon, it's also for us. What about us? This story is about the tragedy of ignoring the inevitable result of living like this, like Belshazzar. And Christian friends, one thing that can trouble us so much, it troubles me and as I'm having conversations over my years of pastoral ministry and now with many of you. This is such a troubling thing that we can know so much in our heads, right? We can know so much about God and yet it not get into our hearts. We can have done so many Bible studies, listened to so many sermons, read so many books, listened to so many podcasts, whatever it is. We know so much in our heads, yet often it feels like so little gets into our hearts. 
this story says, what we all know to be true, knowing alone doesn't change us. We won't change at all until we humble our hearts. Daniel's sermon, his mini sermon to Belshazzar, is for everyone, verses 22 and 23. He says, we have not glorified him. The God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life, even if we really just believe that, a God who holds everything in, our, in his hands, who controls the whole course of our lives, our lives would be profoundly changed and different. So this week I've been haunted by this reality. How do we humble our hearts? How does what is in our minds, what we know, get into our hearts and change us? And I believe the answer, at least in large part, is found in James in the passage we just prayed through earlier in our service. For me, and I believe so many Christians, the gap between our head and our heart is a gap of grieving. We don't know how to grieve. James 4, 7 through 10. I'll put it up on the screen again. It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I have to confess, I don't like this passage at all. Gloom and mourning and weeping, I don't want to do any of that. This seems like a downer. But do you see what James is saying? Humbling ourselves is mourning, grieving. Drawing near to God is weeping when it is called for. The point is not to be in a state of perpetual gloom here. That's not what James is saying. He's saying when grieving and mourning is called for, and you are laughing and you are joyful, that is a great tragedy. And in our times that we're living in right now, as it ever been more called for, for us to grieve and mourn and weep. Friends, I speak to myself here, I speak to you, my church, Trinity family, and those of you listening in, we must learn to grieve. Nobody in a comfortable Western, suburban American culture likes James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. We don't want to do it. We want to make it quick. And easy we want the joy we want the laughter without the grieving and the mourning but that is a sure and tragic recipe for the things in our mind to just stay in our minds to never to change us we never humble our hearts that's the tragedy Belshazzar was feasting when the writing was on the wall he should have been mourning and weeping what about us even in a COVID world, we can go on and keep on feasting and ignoring and avoiding the writing on the wall through distraction. Friends, this passage, it's a sober call to us. The writing is on the wall, so let us learn to grieve and mourn in order that we might draw near to God in humility. This story is a comedy about when people try to play God, this story is a tragedy as well, of living in pride despite knowing better. But there is great hope in this story too. This is also a story of victory. But it's not the victory 
of this king, Darius. It's not about a human victory. This is the story of victory of God. God's victory over Babylon. With just a little tiny finger, God took out the mighty Babylonian kingdom. The finger writing the message made it clear, yes, the means are coming, but God is the one behind it all. The message to Belshazzar was one of judgment. That's pretty clear. But to the exiles who were reading this, the message was one of hope and peace. In all of our struggles when we're living in exile, when life is not making sense, when the future is uncertain and there's fog and uncertainty, here is what this passage is reminding and saying to us. The finger of God is writing the story of history. The finger of God is writing your story. In fact, very specifically, with the coming of Darius, who is also known as Cyrus in the Bible, the Jews were then allowed to return home, to come out of exile, to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And it's specifically mentioned numerous times that when Darius came to be in charge, the vessels of the temple, these very same vessels that Belshazzar had used to blaspheme God, were taken and given back to the Jews, and they took them back to Jerusalem and to the temple. If you read Ezra 1, you'll see they're all there and they're all accounted for. The point is this, when it appeared that God was being mocked, that God was most absent and most weak, he was working of victory over Belshazzar and Babylon that could not be stopped. At that very moment where God seemed absent, at that very moment when God seemed weak, that he was letting people mock and ridicule him, at that very moment, God was working his victory. The writing on the wall made it clear. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that clears the fog, that removes the uncertainty that we're all facing about the future and brings the inevitable result and the clear and apparent sign that we need in order to have hope and peace. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, I was reading this this week with a couple of my sons. I was reading this in light of this uh, passage in Daniel chapter 5, and there we see over and over again Jesus being mocked, spat upon, you are the king of the Jews, aren't you? Oh, you are the mighty king in charge of everything. Sure, they placed upon his head the placard that said, here is the king of the Jews. They ridiculed him, insulted him, and said, if you're really the son of God, if you're really who you say you are, you would get down and save yourself. But the gospel is that the mighty, most high, almighty God came into this world, this world that we might laugh at, this world that is a great tragedy in our pride, standing against God. How did God handle it? He came into this world even being mocked, ridiculed, insulted. And in that place where he seemed most absent and most weak, he was achieving a victory over sin, death, evil, injustice, and all suffering. And it is that victory that is sure and apparent. The writing is on the wall 
the cross of Jesus and his resurrection, that all who place their faith in him, we know, we know how the story will be written. And when the fog is thick, when the future is uncertain, specifically in our lives, how is that working out for me now until then, until the final victory of Jesus when he comes again? We remember. We remember the cross. But even when it appears like God is absent and weak, he is at work, he is in control. His kingdom is coming. You know, the most quoted passage from the Old Testament in the New Testament, I don't know if you know what that is, it's Psalm 110. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The early church needed to remember that. They needed to remember that Jesus was reigning and ruling, sitting at the right hand of God, and he will make all of his enemies his footstool. All that comes and stems from human pride all sin, suffering, evil. He will be victorious over all of them. They needed to be reminded of that often. That's why it's the most repeated verse in the New Testament. Now we would say, I, would, I just want a finger to appear on my wall to remind me, to write on my wall and say, remember when you can't see it, God is at work. But friends, we have something better. We have Jesus. There's comedy in the story. There's, there is a kind of laughter. There is tragedy and there are tears that need to result from this story. But the dominant feeling, the dominant impact that this story should have on our lives is one of hope and peace. The kingdom of God that begins as a mustard seed that seems insignificant, weak, and small. This kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus, indeed has come and despite all obstacles and even when it is foggy and unclear this kingdom is at work this king is at work in us and through us and he will one day reign forever let's pray god we thank you for this story in this season that we're all living through there's many temptations for us uh, to fear, to look around at what's going on all around us, the things that are being spoken, uh, the political division, the things that feel like they are at stake in our lives, in our country, in our communities. We pray that we would remember that you indeed are in charge, that we would hear that, that laughter to wake us up, that we would be sober and clear in our thinking we pray also, and I pray this for my own heart and all those listening, that where we do need to learn to grieve, that you have put us in the place of grieving so that we would be humble. We'd be truly humble. We'd be able to draw near to you and help us see through the fog and the uncertainty, Jesus, that you, you do reign and rule and that you will not give up on us and you will never give up on your kingdom. Help us hold on to and experience that hope and peace. We pray it in your name, Jesus. 
Amen.